The winemakers are up next, but first, check out this other great show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Destination Eat Drink. This week on the podcast, we're in Costa Rica with TV host Kim Haas to try a fruit called Aki. The fruit initially, when I tasted it, it it's kind of slimy and sour. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Find out if the Aki fruit wins over Kim Haas and more Costa Rican cuisine on the Destination Eat Drink podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Hey guys, welcome to the Winemakers. We are celebrating International Grenache Day today, so we thought, you know, if you're if, if you're going to celebrate a holiday, let's say it's uh, it's Christmas, well, you go to the church, and so that's what we're doing today. We have Jason Haas on, who is from Tablas Creek, that is the mecca of Rhone varietals here in California. Nothing against you, Sam. Hey, North Bay. Nah. <laughs> Look, there's, there, there isn't anything called, well, yet anyway, a 16600 clone of Grenache. And until there is, we don't get to claim anything uh, in regards to, uh, you know, <laughs> we're just following along. Someday, Sam, someday. Some, someday. I know. Well, I think it's probably more like Phil's, cl- well, Phil has a bunch of clones that he could name, but unfortunately none of them are Grenache or Zinfandel. Well, how did Tablas <laughs> Creek end up getting their own clone? There must be a great story behind it. Well, let's 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 lay a little backstory. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, don't, you went real deep, real quick, John. Uh, first of all, we're used to celebrating International Grenache Day all together in a room, either at as you can't all see from my shirt, but Sandra is is uh, nice enough to host a Grenache Day celebration every year. Sam has had some celebrations at the sixteen six hundred Tasting House. This year, we got to do it virtually, so there's a lot of stuff going on online. I know. Um, um, Vicky and MJ Towler have put something together for Friday as well um, to celebrate Grenache. And MJ might jump on later and, and do a little promotion for that event. But we wanted to at least acknowledge International Grenache Day at the hotel. I've got someone pouring on Friday for the complimentary wine pouring. I made sure and called the tasting room and said, you guys need to bring Grenache. Otherwise, don't come. I'm going to pour something from another winery. And they were nice enough to accommodate. But Jason has... Uh, uh, John, the history of Tablas Creek is um, is amazing, and I can tell you right now, I decided to open this up. <laughs> it is just a baby. It's a 2016 uh, Chateau de Beaucastel that I actually got as a Christmas gift from Mr. Phil Katuri uh, last year. So really uh, nice. Uh, he never gives me anything. That was out of your stash, Sam. Fair, fair, yeah, yeah, probably came out of Sam's cellar. <laughs> <laughs> and I am, I am using my Coravin today. So I Coravin'd out a little bit so I didn't have to drink it all before going to work. But Jason, awesome. welcome to the show. Maybe for the two people that don't know that listen to our show about the history of Topless Creek and Bocastel. Oh, and John. And John, if you want to give us just, just a, you know, I know a brief history is probably impossible to do, but just kind of let the listeners know how you guys got involved in Rhone varietals here in the new world. Sure. Um, so Thomas Creek has always been run and was conceived of as a joint partnership 
Um, it's equally owned by two families. One of the families is my family. My dad was Robert Haas. He founded the importing company Vineyard Brands, was a wine importer all the way back into the 1950s. The other family is the Perrin family from Chateau de Bocastel. Um, thank you, Brian, for holding up the bottle. Um, and they've been one of the leading producers in Chateau Nifty Pop for five generations now. The same family has owned and run the estate since 1909. Um, and my dad represented them starting in the late 60s as their importer and managed to convince Jacques Perrin, who was the patriarch of that family, to lend him his two sons to travel around the U.S. with him in the 70s and 80s to introduce Americans, not just to Bocastel, but Chateau Nifty Pop and the Rhone Valley more generally at a time when American wine, American wine lovers basically only knew Burgundy and Bordeaux. Um, and so through those visits and all that time they spent together, they became friends. Um, they would visit California on a lot of those trips because it's a great wine market. And every time they were together in San Francisco, my dad would grab them for an afternoon and they'd drive up to Napa and Sonoma and, and look at what was sprouting up there. And this was an era when my dad was representing wineries like Kistler and Phelps and Chapelet and Spring Mountain and Clodeval. And he and the parents would visit these wineries, come away impressed with the quality of the wines and come back talking about why would be grown varieties in this, in this Mediterranean climate. And so in 85, they put together a partnership and started looking for a spot to do it themselves. And in 89, bought 120 acres in the hills west of Paso Robles, where I'm sitting right now. Mm. So um, we, we had the property and the idea before we had the idea before the property and we had the property before we had any vines. And we knew that we wanted to work with the, the Bocastel collection of Rhone varieties. And the problem was that several of those varieties didn't exist in the United States yet. Um, we knew we wanted to plant Picpoul and Cunoise and Grenache Blanc and, and nobody had them, nobody had ever used them. Um, and at the same time, we were a little suspicious about the provenance and the quality of the clones of the Rhone varieties that were here already. I mean, there was Grenache, there was Syrah, there was Morvedra, there was theoretically Roussan, there was some Viognier. But when we went and looked at the vineyards, um, we didn't love what we saw. I remember seeing a picture of my dad at a Grenache vineyard in the Central Valley holding a Grenache cluster that was bigger than his head. I mean, it was like larger than a basketball and the, like the berries were the size of plums and probably 15 tons to the acre at least <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was what Grenache was used yeah. for in the in the 70s it was it was gallo hardy burgundy like how much how much fruit can you make that gets decent sugar and you can you can adulterate it however you want because it's not labeled as what it is so anyway they they didn't want to wonder if they were handicapping their own prospects by working with clones that were never going to be able to be great. And so we imported new cuttings of all the principal varieties from Bocastel, waited for them to clear quarantine, built a grapevine nursery, and uh, before too long ended up in the second business, not just of producing vines for ourselves, but also of, of making grapevine cuttings available to other vineyards and wineries around California and around the West Coast. So um, our first yeah. Vines came into quarantine in 89. We got our first vines out of quarantine in 92. Our first vines in the ground in 94. And our first vintage was 97. That was our first. That's when we opened, 97. It was a good year. Momentous year. Exactly. <laughs> well, Jason, what were the first for, uh, varietals that you had in the ground? So we, we brought in eight varieties to start. So Morvedra, Grenache, Syrah, and Cunoise, and then Roussan, Marsan, Viognier, and Grenache Blanc. So we started with eight. 
Um, we brought in Pickpool not too much after that because of the success we'd had with Grenache Blanc. We decided that some of the these higher acid white roan varieties could really thrive in California. And then in 2003, um, we decided that we wanted the whole Chateauneuf, at least the whole Bocastel collection. So we brought in seven more varieties, um, the obscure ones like Muscardin and Picardin and Vaccarez, Terre Noir, Sanso, Bourbon. Um, so uh, those have been coming out of quarantine little by little over the last decade. Um, Muscardin was the last of them to come out of quarantine a couple of years ago. We got that grafted to the vineyard last year, and we actually have some Muscardin, Muscardin grapes on the vine now, the first Muscardin in, in, in the New World. So wow. at this point, we've got all 14 of the, of the Bocastel Chateauneuf varieties, plus Viognier, Marsan, and a couple of interlopers. I did get my first bottles of Berbalonk last week. Yeah, that was, uh, that was one of the ones that we got in 15 out of quarantine, 14 or 15, got it in the ground in 16, and our first harvest was, was 19 was last year. What do you think? It's, it's great. It's, um, you know, we talked about it on the show last week, I think. It's, you know, the purity of the Berbalonk. It's not manipulated where it's got a ton of oak or it goes, it's, it's tasting what the grape is like. And, and having never had it, before accepting a blend, you know, you don't know really what it's supposed to taste like or what, you know, what it tastes like in the new world. Um, but I enjoyed it. Yeah. And I, welcome to, welcome to our world. I mean, we don't know what it's supposed to taste like either, really. I mean, there, right. there's so little of a lot of these grapes that um, we're, we're having to, to kind of figure it out as we go along. I mean, like, like Picardin is a great example. I mean, that, that's a grape where we planted half an acre of Picardin in 2013 and increased the world's population of Picardin by 40%. <laughs> um, that's amazing like, there's none of this anywhere it basically yeah. it, it just about went extinct in the in the, the late 19th century and um, the fact that they have it at all is a result of this kind of crazy quest that Jacques Perrin went on in the, in the 1950s to find all of the traditional Chateauneuf varieties where they'd survived phylloxera and where nobody had bothered to pull them out and plant with something else um, so it's in, in some cases we have a, a really good roadmap from what they do at Bocastel. And then there's other cases where, where we just try to pick it at some kind of numbers that look like they make sense. And when the, the grapes look like they're ready and, and then get ready to, to learn from our experience the next year. And what's super cool about your vineyard, you know, Bart and I were lucky enough to go down last year. You hooked us up with Nathan and we got to take a tour and, um, and then Sandra and I had uh, Maggie from the hatch on, uh, on our podcast a couple weeks ago. And that was great to talk about her getting yeah. some of the animals from the, from the yeah. property and, and pairing it with the wines. Um, but you guys just got a big, you are now the only vineyard, I believe, to have the regenerative um, organic certification in, yeah. in the world, in the United States. I don't know. Yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the world um, as much as, as much as that that's penetrated internationally, but yeah, this is something that we've been we've been working on for the last couple of years that we're super proud of and really excited for kind of the 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 path that it that it points forwards for 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 wineries but also agriculture more generally. Um, for those the people who don't aren't aware of it, this is is designed to be kind of the the gold standard of responsible farming. So there are aspects that are taken from organics, like you're eliminating chemicals. There's also aspects that are taken from biodynamics where you are really focusing on soil health, um, biodiversity, the microbial health of the soil, um, replacing 
um, kind of inputs that you're having to put in with natural processes. Um, and, but then there's also an animal welfare pillar that you have to be audited to show that any of the animals that you have on your property are, are being treated well. And then finally, you've got a, you've got a, a, a farm worker fairness pillar that certifies that you are paying your, your team that's working your, your, your fields a living wage, that their conditions are safe, that they, that they have the ability to organize if they want to organize, and that you're involving them in the decision making. Um, so it's been really a fascinating thing for us to be a part of. We were, we were invited to be in the pilot program of this, this effort, which goes way beyond wine. I mean, wine is just one little piece of it. There were pilot program participants who were livestock, who were orchards, who were row crops, who were fibers. And the, a lot of the, the muscle and impetus and money behind it came from Patagonia because they wanted to be able to certify that their whole supply chain was farming in a way that was consistent with, with their company's values. And so um, we had, we're doing a lot of that stuff anyway. We've been certified organic for two decades. We've been certified biodynamics for several, biodynamic for several years. Um, and we um, had been, we had animals on the property. And so I think we were a, a, a useful and, a, and, and attractive um, pilot partner because we were doing a lot of stuff already. Um, so we were in that pilot program for a year and a half and, and just, they just made the announcement of the, the first round of certifications and opened up this program more generally to anybody who wanted to apply, which I think is, is super exciting because as proud as I am to be the first, I hope that we're not the only one for very long at all. This is, this is the kind of thing that the more people who do it, the better. Well, hopefully, Jason, we're um, close on your tail. We'll get closer to regen. We'll we'll get you to uh, regenerative farming closer, faster than we got to Grenache. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely it's definitely something that um, we've looked at uh, as Enterprise Vineyards um, because the you know the certifications as they stood failed to grasp the entirety of of what we do and and how we farm and 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 how we, you know, uh, treat the people that we work with. Um, and so that's definitely um, something we've, we've followed closely and are so excited, um, you know. Plus, I think there's some Patagonia swag in it, which um, is pretty much a reason enough to do anything these days. Get one of those vote the assholes out tags. That's all, that's all I want. <laughs> I saw that yesterday. That's amazing. Yeah, I didn't realize, you know, I just heard a story about a month ago about on NPR and it was about Patagonia and um, I think Chobani uh, was one of the companies. I don't know what C Corp means. This is some like some basically certification for companies that means that they're socially or economically or um, environmentally responsible um, in some ways. But I didn't know that Patagonia, for example, like if, if something happens to your shirt, it gets ripped or buttons or zippers fall off. They don't want you to come buy a new one. You send it in and they repair it for you. So they want you to have the clothing for life, which I thought was really cool. Um, yep. They have this truck that's, that's like a custom built old diesel truck that they take to sustainable and organic events. And if you have something Patagonia, you drop it at the truck and you come back, you know, 
six hours later, eight hours later or something, and they've fixed it on the spot. I'm trying to – like the repair van, Jason, maybe – I can't remember, but it's it's always at uh, Eco Farm, like in the parking lot. They don't want you to post on Instagram so that people show up and like drop tons of things on them. But if you're there <laughs> and you have a badge to the to the conference, you know, I've, I've had a, a handful, you know. And I know now I like if I, you know, bust the zipper on something, pocket t- torn, I take – save it for Eco Farm and take it down to the Eco Farm. It's the best. Yeah. No, Super cool. It's a, it's such a, it's a, it's such a remarkable company in that again they, they have much bigger aims than selling lots of clothing, um, and I think that they've been their just their conviction that um, farming has a critical role to play in addressing issues like climate change and um, inequality and. Um, biodiversity and all of these like big picture, big challenge questions that society is dealing with. Um, I think, and that, that's for me the most appealing thing about regenerative agriculture as a whole is that it, is, it essentially points a way for agriculture to be a part of the solution to these problems. Not, not just like if you're farming organically, maybe you're not contributing to the problems, but regenerative farming takes that one step further and, and asks you to incorporate incorporate ways that you you help solve them right the the concept that sustainable is no longer sustainable that we can't keep at the status quo um because what's happening out there is happening too fast for the status quo to do anything about and and i you know you put out some stuff uh in your blog this week or was the last week about you know this is the time that farmers and wine in the West coast has to deal with, you know, have to deal with climate change, uh, you know, in a way that's unavoidable um, and we have to have the conversation. So you want to sort of talk more about what you're seeing, um, you know, in Paso and we try and keep track of what's going down in there, but um, what does that look like for you and your vineyards you know, in this last month? So I feel like I brought this on our brought this on myself by by writing a blog in early August about how the summer had been really pretty benign up to that point, and we'd had uh, so like it's all your fault. <laughs> like, so I'm sorry, I take responsibility for what's happened over the last six weeks. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, we've seen a, a whole a whole run of unprecedented things. I feel like unprecedented is one of the words that that we can just kind of tie to 2020. Um, but yeah, we had the, the we had two big heat waves. Um, one of which broke the all-time high temperature in Paso Robles. It hit 117 degrees here. Um, we had this kind of fluky tropical storm that came up. Not a not a tropical storm in the official sense, but a bunch of tropical moisture from the remnants of a hurricane that came up and sparked thousands of lightning strikes and and lit a bunch of fires in August, which is really early in the fire season for California, as, as you all know. Um, we then had this smoke layer that was so thick from the fires that are burning to the north of us that there were a couple of days last week where the temperature didn't get out of the 60s um, in what's supposed to be prime ripening season because the sun never came out. So, I mean, it's basically been a series of things I mean, between air quality and smoke and fires and rain when it's not expected and um, heat waves that we've never seen anything the like of. Um, 
it, it's just a year where I feel like the challenges presented by climate change are really brought into high relief. Um, and I, I think that this is a year where you just can't escape the conclusion that this is not the way that it has been. This is getting worse. This is different than what we've seen in the, in the, in the recent past. And if there are, and, it, and it's impacting wineries in a, in a really direct way across the state. It's not just in areas where there's a fire right nearby. We don't have a fire within 60 miles of us. But at the same time, that doesn't mean we've escaped the impacts. I mean, everybody is worried about smoke taint, even though we haven't had much smoke at the surface. It's still everybody's, everybody's worried. Everybody's getting tested. Everybody's worried about the heat. Everybody's worrying and, and talking about the, that strange overcast layer and what it's going to do to what it's going to do to ripening where, so that was the, that was, that was the blog that I wrote. I think I published it on Sunday. It was basically that this is the, this is 2020 is the year that climate change gets real for, for American wineries. Um, and it's not to say that this is the year that all of the changes happen. Obviously this is something which has been happening over decades, but it, it does feel like it was a tipping point. Yeah. 100%. I, sh I should mention the fact that we do have Sandra Bernstein on the podcast today, too. We, um, oh, hi, Sandra. Any, hi. Hey, any, hi, you guys. Anytime we, anytime we talk about Grenache, we, uh, we always want to get Sandra involved. It is her, her favorite varietal, I know. And normally you'd be having a celebration this weekend, um, but you are... I'm celebrating um, on the inside. And, and and I know you have some good Grenache at your house. You planning on opening something up? I I do. I'm gonna I'm gonna look in the little cooler and see what I've got. I've got a few goodies. Um, but I was just thinking about a couple years ago when we were at the Roan um, the Roan Rangers Award, and I got that uh, Lifetime Achievement Award, which is like really weird to get before my lifetime is over, but. Um, <laughs> My brother came and he bought the Tablas Creek auction item, which was like four or five humongo bottles. And I don't, where are they? Oh, they're, I think in my, in the cellar in the office. But um, he keeps what? saying to me Let's every go. time, he's like, <laughs> when do we get to go have that lunch there? When are we going to go down and get the lunch with the winemaker? And I'm like, I have no idea when that's going to be. So just FYI, <laughs> I'm saying it here. You guys still owe us lunch. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I think, Jason, you're like the perfect guest to have today. Um, you know, obviously, the girl in the fig, well, maybe not obviously, but we've been so committed to Roan for Idols and, you know, totally happened by accident and it's just been an incredible, incredible, um, fun time learning about wine and, you know, creating all these relationships all over the world with, um, incredible winemakers, you know, whether it's Garnacha or Cananao or, you know, whatever they're making, it's been really, really fun. And I think Grenache in regards to food, it's just one of those grapes that, goes every way somebody wants to make the wine. And I think it's like you, you're starting with an amazing grape, but then you can either let it go and do the minimal amount that you want to do with it, or you can create a style. Because 
I could do a blind tasting with 10 different Grenache. And I think if I didn't know, I might not think that they were all Grenache. And I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a grape that offers winemakers, I think, a lot of choices and a lot of options. It's, I mean, it's can be delicious on its own. It's, it's really useful as a blending, as a minor blending partner, because it's got good acidity and it's got um, nice fruit and it's open and it's friendly. Or it can be the lead grape as it is typically in Chateau Neuf du Pop, where other things just kind of add nuances, usually little darker tones or, or more tannin um, that Grenache doesn't have. It's also very reflective of where it's grown um, mm-hmm. get a lot of different expressions depending on what the, what the soils are like and, and what the, the climate is like in those places. And then of course you can use it not just to make red wines, but it makes, it makes the world's greatest rosés. So Look at um, that it's, it's flexible. <laughs> it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's got, it, it's got so many, so many opportunities that it offers to anybody who wants to, wants to grow it and make it. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's also kind of amazing how many um, new wineries are kind of starting their portfolio with Grenache. You know, it's so different than it was twenty years ago, where you know it was kind well, of twenty years. Yeah, twenty years ago there was none available, really. Not for not 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 for any small wineries. Not if you wanted if you wanted to buy a small amount. You know, it was all winery owned, really. Right. Nobody was planting Grenache on spec in big vineyards, hoping that people would come and buy it. It was basically right. planted by planted by Rhone specialists, and they were using what they using what they. Grew. But, but Jason, don't you think it's amazing how people did do that with Syrah? Yeah, in and, like and, 98, and, 97, yeah, 98, to their detriment. Right. right, and they, they planted it in all Syrah's the detriment right. to to Syrah's, Syrah's detriment. Hundred percent. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, and it's I, I, one of the reasons I think that you have the you have these opportunities now for wineries to really more wineries to leap into Grenache or wineries to use Grenache as the core of their identity. I'm thinking of somebody like a tribute to Grace or mm-hmm. um, I mean, winery. I mean, she all she does is Grenache, um, and I think that the the move in American wine and internationally, but the move in American wine to appreciating red wines with more lift and freshness and brightness is something which has been really friendly to Grenache. And Grenache is usually not gonna be this opaque, tannic um, grape. It's not gonna, I mean, I, I can understand why somebody would have looked at Syrah and said, hey, Cabernet has been super successful. I bet I can guess what's gonna be successful next and, yeah. and chosen Syrah for that reason. Right. Grenache is not like that. Grenache is going to make wines that are, um, they're, they're, they're all different tones of red, but they're usually not black. Um, and they've got a lot of acid and they've got freshness that can be kind of crunchy. And, and uh, that wouldn't have been as welcome even a decade ago, I think, in the American, American world of wine. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think, I think yeah. you're, you're on to something there. How has Tablos Creek, because when I, when I think of you know, it's certainly not as, as sort of bright and light toned as, as Angela is sort of seeking with Tribute to Grace, but it, it you know, it kind of runs the more towards the middle of sort of the Grenache continuum, but being the first ones out with that, 
and telling that story. Um, how how did Tobles Creek start telling that story of what Grenache is and what these Rhone varietals are and, and what to expect for, um, you know, from a consumer who's, you know, I imagine at this point, most people who show up at Tobles Creek know why they're there, but it, I'm sure that wasn't always the case. It was not always the case. And our, it's interesting. I, I would say that Grenache is probably not the story that we told most often at mm. the beginning. I mean, we're we're more of a Morvedra house than we are a Grenache house. Right, it is Bocastel, um, right. As is Bocastel, and our our esprit um, has always been based on Morvedra. The the Cote de Tablas that we make is always has always been based on Grenache. So we've we've really enjoyed the opportunity to kind of play both in that Bocastel vein where Morvedra takes the lead and in that more traditional Southern Rhone vein where Grenache takes the lead um, with the two main blends that we do. But our, our approach to Grenache for the first really 20 years of our existence was as a blending grape. Um, and so we spent lots of time doing things like blending seminars to come out and have examples of Grenache and Syrah and Morvedra and Cunois and talk about them, what they're like on their own, but, but spend more time talking about what they contribute to the, to the whole, to the greater, greater whole. I mean, we didn't do a varietal Grenache for the first time until 2006, which is pretty late for us compared to a lot of the other things. So we, we had already done a varietal Morvedra, a varietal Syrah, and a varietal Cunois by then, before we got around to Grenache. Um, <laughs> and, um, the, uh, when we introduced it, I, I think those first few years, we were trying to find our footing with it too. And this was still very much in that kind of Robert Parker dominated era where if it wasn't big and, and intense and powerful and, and as you could into a single sip, it was, it was less worthy. Um, and so it, for, for me, it wasn't really until we got into like the 13, 14, 15 era for us that I feel like I was really happy with where we landed in, in kind of Grenache's profile. And you're right. We're not going for these, super ethereal kinds of Grenaches the way that, again, like, like Angela does the Tribute to Grace, but nor are we trying to make something that's 16% alcohol and has 10% Syrah blended in and is trying to, is trying to, to, to masquerade as, I don't know, Priorat or, or something, something like that. So um, I think that's probably a pretty good way of thinking about our style overall. We're trying to make things that are pretty true to what the the classic expression is of these different grapes um, without trying to make them be something that they're not. Right. Yep. Which is, which we talked about, I think last week on the show, which is what I appreciate about Tabas Greek wines is that it basically is show you, showing you a, a, a clean, true representation of the varietal and what it can do in the new world. I have a, I have a fun story along those lines. Um, so, 2012, and I'm not sure if that's true for the other, other winemakers on here, but in 2012, um, we had particularly Grenache. A lot of things were quite pale in color, but particularly Grenache. We had a lot of really pale Grenache lots. And we got one of our visits from Francois Perrin. We typically get a, a Perrin visit in November after harvests are done just to kind of taste with us through the cellar and uh, get a wrap, wrap their heads around what we're doing. And so we're, we're walking through the cellar and um, Neil, who's been our winemaker forever, um, asked Francois 
is there anything that you do to get a little more color out of your grenaches? Um, and Francois just sort of looked at him. Um, and so Neil elbows me and said, ask, ask him that in French. Um, and and uh, Francois said, no, no, I understood, but that's what Syrah is for. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I think that gives you a pretty good sense of the way that, the way that, they, that, 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 that we inherit from Bocastel this idea that grapes should be encouraged to express themselves to the fullest extent. And then if you want something that's different from that, great, you get that by blending. Um, but to try to make a single grape do everything to be everything to everyone is, is likely a, a recipe for, for disappointment. Well, and, and that's the, the beauty of the Rhone wines. Um, you know, the, the Rhone blend, the Grenache Chateau de Pas blend is you put these three or four things together and all of a sudden, you know, what's the, what's the cliche about the whole being greater than the sum of the parts that you yes. create uh, something with it that, that wouldn't have existed on their own. Uh, but together they can, they, you know, aspire to these, to these, uh, these heights that, you know, keep us coming back. Right. Yep. And Jason, how did, if, so let's say I'm a, you know, I, I got some money. I decide I want to plant a vineyard. How do I get a hold of Tablas clones? And what, what does that look like? We just, it's a phone call. And then you say, I mean, how does that all happen? How do people get a hold of those? How do the I'll call Phil? Phone call, uh, first, firstborn child. Um, <laughs> no, it's, we work with um, a, a nursery that's based up in Santa Rosa called Nova Vine, uh, where um, they, we've worked with them from very early to, to propagate the vines that come out of UC Davis and then to, um, to, to plant them in increased blocks and then make them available to, to other people who want to plant them. And it's, in some cases, you, you could call them up and they'll be like, yeah, okay, well, you want to know, we've got an inventory right now. We've got 700 vines of Grenache, Tabla C clone grafted onto 1103P rootstock. And we've got 45 vines of whatever. So they have a certain amount that they have there. But usually if somebody's talking about planting a vineyard, they'll, they'll call them up and say, okay, I, I want to plant this next year. Um, this is the rootstock I want. This is the clone that I want. I need 30,000 plants. Um, and crap. then it takes them a year or two to, depending on what it is, to produce what they need. And, and then you get it. So it's, it's not like going to Target and, uh, and, and generally buying off the rack what's there. Typically, people who are planting vineyards of any scale have very specific requests for clones and rootstocks and um, they're all vines are generally made to order. And, and, and at and, this point, Brian, yeah, good, go Bart. Say what you're going to say. I should say, and they hire someone who knows what they're doing. Right. Hopefully. For that. <laughs> I mean, at this point, the, the Tablas Creek clones are, are widespread enough, Brian, that you can do that, but you could also do is go to a vineyard that has it nearby and, you know, similar characteristics to the vineyard that you want to develop and go out there this time of year and f no Bart says, no, don't do it. Go out there and find the, you're taking, listen, wait, you're taking a, a dime out of Jason's pocket, Sam. <laughs> yeah, but we're building you the know? brand. We're building the brand, the idea of the topless okay. Creek clones, okay. but you also, you know, that's how clones develop. You go and you find, you go to steel plow vineyard where we have, you know, a, 
probably mix of the Antov clones and the, and the Tavos Creek clones. And you find the vines that look the best in that location with those soils and those climates and you, and you get budwood from there. Um, and, and that's, you know, it's a, it's a longer, more in, you know, in process oriented road than, than calling Nova vine. But, um, at this point, you know, the Tavos Creek clones are, um, ubiquitous enough in the Rhone world that there's probably a handful of vines that have some random mutation in your area that are going to make it grow better in your area. Not always, but, um, you know, and, and obviously when you go to the, the, there's more assurances, um, through, through the nurseries, but, um, you know, that's when things start to get interesting for me is when you start to, when things start to get weird for their own place. Um, and then you end up with, you know, the Martini clone of Zinfandel, which comes from Monterosso, the vines that have survived 120 years up there. Um, you know, that's the, the evolution that these things are, are supposed to take. So, Sam, you're saying get a truck, go yeah, in the middle. I save you go so in the much middle, money, Go in the middle of it. <laughs> two o'clock in the morning. Right. Just pull up to a vineyard and take, take what you want. Uh, you know, you just if you find a bottle of Old Roan in that <laughs> cellar at at the Fairmont, and it ends up in Phil's cellar somehow, I think you could so, probably get whatever you want. Hey, can you give us the address of the Steel Plow Vineyard? <laughs> uh, it's just down the road from Novavine, actually. <laughs> wow! So you can pay or not pay, huh? Exactly. <laughs> but then again, you have to. Then you have to do all the work yourself too. You That's have to do yeah, exactly. uh, right. You have to plant the rootstocks. You have to. Uh, it's right. It's, it's the process. Not, right. It's not. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not totally straightforward. <laughs> you know what, Jason? Have you figured out this podcast isn't it's really straightforward totally either? Straight. <laughs> <laughs> and and Jason, you know, um, do you know that I had to join your wine club to get the Berbalong? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> <I didn't. laughs> I I really wanted it, and it said only available to wine club members. And I'm lucky enough to live, you know, near Bottle Barn, where I can go get. You know, maybe maybe you guys have I don't know five seven skews there at, at Bottle Barn. So I'm, you know I can always pick up something from Topless Creek. So I didn't think that I had to join the wine club until the Berbalong came along, and then and then <laughs> I saw, I was laying in bed, you know, in the morning, saw the Instagram post, and was like, holy shit, I got to get some of this. And then oh wait, stop sign have to join the wine club. So you are now the only wine club, actually you and the only wine club that I belong to. My wife also, you know, belongs to Gloria Ferrer cause she's a bubble head, but um, thank you. What I think my fall shipment is uh, going to be coming out soon too. Awesome. I mean, it's, it's one of the, one of the funny evolutions of Tablas Creek is that when we started, we thought we were going to make two wines. We were going to make one red wine and one white wine. We were going to call the red wine Tablas Creek Rouge and the white wine Tablas Creek Blanc. Uh, we got really, really inventive in 1999 and made a pink wine that we called Tablas Creek Rosé. Um, and then we realized, you know, this is kind of restrictive. I mean, we're, we can't be select, <laughs> selective about what comes in and make the best wine that we possibly can. So that was when the Esprit de Bocastel and the Cote de Tablas split. So all of a sudden we were making five wines. Um, and then we realized that there were often varietal lots that were so expressive of the variety that it was a shame to force them into a blend. It was a shame to lose that character. And sometimes the, it was so varietally powerful that it didn't blend all that well anyway. 
So then starting in 2002, we bottled, I think, six different varietal wines, as well as the five blends. And so now we make, I think we're bottling 24 different wines this year between different blends and different varietals. Some of them we make as little as 50 cases of. And um, so we feel like there's so much cool stuff that we want to be able to share that no distributor is ever going to want to or be able to deal with that it's been really fun to come up with things for wine club members knowing that yeah there's great retailers out there that have a good selection of tubless creek but they're not going to have these wines yeah uh, and it's a problem for restaurants it, i mean that is a problem for me what Wait, Sandra, we, we, went through, we went through more 2005 Kunwas at the Girl and the Pig than... <laughs> no, 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 I love the Kunwas, I love the Pig Pool. I go for your, you know, the more obscure varietals that people generally don't know. It's really good education for the guests. But, you know, I could have a whole wine list of just Tablas Creek. Right. You know, and we... Wait, wait, that. I don't understand. What's the problem there? Yeah. Okay. But no, there. <laughs> so like. Actually, well, I have a problem with that. Yeah. <laughs> so we can only have a hundred wines because then we run out of paper space. That's well, really how we did it. Sandra, you're the you're the owner, by the way. You can have you can have a hundred and ten. It was my wine. decision. <laughs> okay. But because there, you know, in '97 there was next to nothing available. Now, you know, people, they're coming out of the woodwork with these wines, and a lot of them are really amazing that we've gone from where we had maybe three wines from a winery or winemaker, and now we're like trying to get to one because we don't have enough room. And so I can't imagine having 24, you know, different bottlings, like how do you... How do you like sell that? Like, how do you market that to like restaurants so that they're buying more than, I don't know. I guess it's my thing. Well, there's certain stuff there. Restaurants probably aren't being offered, right, Jason? Right. I mean, and what we try to do is if, I mean, and Brian, Brian and, and Sandra, you know this well. I mean, if, if we go up and a restaurant like Girl in the Fig is like, man, what I really want is, is your Kunwaz or that new Bourbonc or, I mean, we're going to make that happen. We'll figure out a way to get a special order through our, our, um, our distributor to get that wine to the, the places that it needs to be. But that's why we don't try to market everything through wholesale. It's too, it's too much. It's too much for um, a distributor to wrap their heads around. It's too easy for, small amounts of things to get orphaned. It's, it's not realistic to assume that, that a distributor is going to be able to sample out all these different wines. I mean, a lot what of those things. What does that mean, orphaned? So you might have, say, a case and eight bottles of some obscure thing in distributor inventory. All of the distributor reps will look at this and say, that's not enough to support a placement. If I get a placement, I'm not going to pull a bottle of that to try to sell it somewhere. And so then at that point, that may be true for two years. Then you've got something which is two vintages out of date of something that's there. So it's basically just lost in inventory because there's not enough of it for anyone to pay attention to. Yeah. Um, so, but those kinds of wines are absolutely perfect wines to have 
at your tasting room or to have for, for a wine club. Like that Bourbon um, we we do a white-only version of our wine club. And there's about a 1,000 members of that club. So um, we need about 80-something cases of a wine in order to get a bottle out to a 1,000 members. And to be able to send the a bottle of that Bourbon out to all of those people, it's the first Bourbon ever made the first one that we've ever made, one of the first ever made outside of France. Um, like that's a super cool thing for them. Mm-hmm. And it's a great way for us to connect like these small production, interesting, unusual wines with people who have kind of self-identified as wanting small production, unique, unusual wines. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't send the Patelin de Tablas wines, which are the wines that generally restaurants, there's enough quantity and enough continuity of for restaurants to pour by the glass those are not the right wines for us to send out to our wine club members mm-hmm. because they can find them at their local, their local bistro or their local, um, local independent wine shop. Um, and that's one of the things that's driven that growth from the two wines in the initial model or the five wines when we were just making, making the two blends of red, two blends of white to the 20, whatever we have now is that our wine club, we started our wine club that same year in 2002, and now we've got 10,000 wine club members. And That is insane. Um, and we've got, I mean, even this year, we'll see 20,000 people come through our tasting room. And like being able to show these small and unique things, it, it gives people a reason to make that long and winding drive past 14 other wineries, no matter which road you take to get out to us, because right. there's, there's something which is a reward at the, at the end. Well, well, Jason, do you, can you um, tell us, do you have a favorite out of those 24 wines? <laughs> Your personal favorite, the one you want to go to. Which kid do I like best? Yeah, absolutely. The best. Um, I, I, I'm not sure this is going to be a totally satisfactory answer, but um, I, <laughs> I feel like the wine that we make that, I may be most proud of like the one that I think represents our approach to things in, in a way that I, that I want to show off most often is probably our, our Esprit de Tablas Blanc. Um, That's the kind of Roussan based white flagship that we do. So it's Roussan about two thirds to three quarters, depending on the vintage and then Grenache Blanc, Picpoul. And then the last couple of years, little bits of, Picardin and Claret Blanche. Um, and I love the weight and richness and texture that that has, but it's still fresh. Um, I feel like you can put that in a lineup of kind of the, the greatest white wines of texture and substance in the world and it shines. Yeah. So that doesn't mean that that's the wine that we make that I drink the most of or that I reach for the most often. Um, I'm tending when that, if that's the question, that tends to be things that are kind of brighter and easier in, in a lot of ways. So, I mean, I love opening a bottle of Cunois and seeing that kind of bright, spicy, juicy, translucent red fruit. I mean, there's all kinds of times where that's what I want to drink or same thing with uh, something like the Vermentino that we do. Um, again, just fresh and bright and, and, and friendly and easy, but, um, I don't know. That's, that's the closest I can come to answering that question. It's a great answer. And thank you. I mean, you looked at it both ways. Perfect. And Jason, I'm kind of curious for your winemaker, like what a cool position to be in when 
you're playing with new varieties of grapes that come along because there is no real benchmark in the new world for some of that stuff like Tourette Noir or Picardine or Clarette Blanche. Um, like, what does he do? Does he say, okay, let me get a white Chateau Neuf that's 100% Clarette Blanche from Domaine Saint Prefer and kind of like see what it does on its own somewhere else and then see where we're at and see what kind of direction we want to go in? That sort of research is definitely a piece of it. Um, a lot of it also is just kind of regular visits to what they're doing at Bocastel because they, I mean, they grow all of these varieties. And even if some of them are so, I mean, there's so little that they're, that they rarely even get fermented on their own. At least there's, there's a base there. I mean, he spent a year, um, a year working in the cellars of Bocastel before taking over at Tablas Creek. So he was there between the summer of 96 and the summer of 97. And he's been here ever since. Um, so it's those two things. Um, and then it's, it's lots of just kind of hands-on observation of, well, this is when the vines start to look like they're ripe. Um, or the, the grapes start to look like they're ripe. There you can see the grapes starting to, to go from fully inflated to slightly deflated. The seeds are turning brown. Flavors are a good mix. Seems like a reasonable place to start. And usually we, we do pretty well the first year. Sometimes we don't. And nobody ever sees those when, they don't, when it doesn't work out. But um, I do, I mean, I feel like we're incredibly lucky that, that Neil is who he is, that he is not a, a winemaker who, who, needs to, who needs to be the star of the, of the finished wine, that he can let the, let the grapes and the, and the place speak and um, not feel like there's, there's winemaking flourishes that people will be like, oh, that's a Neil Collins. Like, right. um, and that's, that's, that's really a remarkable, remarkable talent. And, um, he does have his own label, the Lone Madrone wines that he does, where there are times where you can see that he is, he is going for something a little more, um, hands-on and in, in, in terms of the winemaking. Um, and I think that gives him a creative outlet for those sorts of things. Uh, but does he buy fruit from you guys for that project? Nope. No. Um, he does, he, he does a mix Steals of Rhone and non Rhone stuff that he buys from dry farmed vineyards in, in West Paso, but no, we use all of the fruit that we produce. Okay. Yeah. That, the way you're describing when it's time to pick the grapes sounds very familiar. It sounds like Phil Katuri talking. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, we, once we've done it for, for a few years, we have a sense of, of sort of what the numbers, what the chemistry is that matches up with the right amount of ripeness. But those first couple of years, you don't know. I mean, you don't know whether right. Terre Noir is ripe at 20 bricks or 22 bricks or 24 bricks. I mean, it's, there are different grapes that are, that that, that would be right for. Um, and I, right. I think the first year we maybe were a little early on, on Terre Noir. We picked it at 20 or 21 and um, the acids were high, but it's supposed to be a high acid grape, but we didn't recognize how tannic it was going to be because it wasn't very dark. Right. Turns out it was super tannic. Super tannic and high acid, um, they tend to emphasize each other, and yeah. that's what you're looking for. That's great, but it can be a, it can be a bit of a surprise. So I mean, right. we, learn, we learn too. It's only, your, it's only your first time picking a grape once. 
And big question, does Jeb Dunnick come to you or do you go to Jeb Dunnick? <laughs> well, Jeb doesn't, go, Jeb doesn't go to anyone. Uh, anyone uh, yeah, nobody goes anywhere. <laughs> oh, yeah, not, not this year, right? <laughs> no, normally. Yeah, uh, yeah, he tastes you because your wines weren't at the tasting he does when he comes. Cause like yeah, I usually, you, I mean, we're, we're fortunate that we're established enough and we like, we have a long enough track record that most of those writers who come through Paso to do a, to do a visit. Um, this is Tablas is one of the places they'll come out and, and we'll spend a, a few hours with them running through the full, the full lineup. And I'm, I'm, I'm always grateful for that. Um, I know that's not the case for everybody, but I, I do feel like it is the best way to really get, earned it. Yeah, well, what's the best way to get into into what a winery is all about? Is you you taste the full range of things that they do in context with one another in the place in which they're made, where you can answer, you can ask and get questions answered um, on the spot. It's just really hard to do in a big consolidated tasting in the same way. Hey, right. Brian and Sam, what do you think of uh, let's next spring go down there and do the full boat tasting, even if we're sitting six feet away? It's all okay. Hey, John, I'm a, I'm a wine club member. I think I get a comp tasting. I think that's a great deal, man. I would really love to go. I'd really love to get the, the big pitch, honestly. It well, would and you, you, you got to talk to Nathan because that was one of the coolest things that Bart and I did last year was go down and, and walk the vineyard with Nathan and his dog and, um, you know, talk about, the, you know, how the animals uh, on the property. And, and he just has a unique perspective because it's not necessarily from a a winemaker's perspective it's it's from a steward of the land perspective um so well and and then the other thing about about nathan is that video series that um you guys have him doing um is absolutely hilarious oh, the, um, the yeah, very, very informative. yeah 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 and it's, you know it's, what John? sorry go ahead sorry. It, sorry. It, it's really good i really do enjoy it so keep that up too and, and, and tell nathan we said hi <laughs> i will do that and we, we actually have, we're going to be, we've just dropped a teaser for the fall series, the second season of the Chelsea and the Shepherd. So we're going to be sending out our fall wine club shipment in like three weeks, I think. Um, yeah. And so the videos will come out weekly starting cool. then, each focusing on a different cool. one. It's been awesome. super fun for us. And he's... How many llamas do you have? Llamas? We have zero llamas now. <laughs> we have one. Yeah, there's a llama on your website. Uh, yeah, we had we had a llama for Called a long marketing time. He, oh. <laughs> um, he died of old age last fall, so oh. we currently oh. have zero llamas. Um, we have several alpacas. Um, okay. We have one donkey, um, and at the moment, about two hundred and two hundred and fifteen sheep, something like that. Wow. And how many dogs um, work those sheep? So there's two dogs that move the sheep around, two little border collies, um, whose job it is essentially to keep them organized and, and move them from block to block. And then we have two Spanish Mastiffs whose job it is to guard them. They actually, they, they hang out, they, they sleep with the flock. Um, they live out there and they scare away coyotes and mountain lions and other- Are they white? No, they're not. They're, um, one of them is kind of brindle and one of them is, kind of uh, like light brown. Um, we did have, this is a funny story too. Um, so we, we have a, a Maremma, um, which is essentially, it's big white, big white dog, like a great Pyrenees, but Maremmas are from the Italian Alps instead of from the Spanish Pyrenees. Anyway, they're closely related. They look the same. 
Um, so, but we, we got a Maremma to, to guard the flock a couple of years ago. Um, and it turned out like we might've gotten the world's only Maremma who doesn't care about sheep. So um, we got this, this giant white puppy who kept escaping from where the flock was and coming down to hang out with the winemakers. Oh, um, awesome. So we ended up deciding he was just miscast in the role of, uh, in the role of flock guardian and he became the world's largest seller dog. Um, and, <laughs> and then we got the two Spanish Mastiffs who are they're perfectly friendly with people if you go to see them, but they don't care that much and they're much more interested in their sheep. Hey, I, I want to say a couple things. Number one, Bart is going to have to take off here. We want to um, um, briefly talk about his Zen tasting that he's doing. And, um, this is Gnosh Day, Brian. I, I know. <laughs> Bart, go ahead, I, I Bart. Was I, no, I was trying to leave without, you know, hoping you'd give a little plug in the very end or something. Oh. Um, I, I have a, I'm actually bottling wine tomorrow. I'm, I'm actually bottling Grenache tomorrow. So um, I got to go. Um, okay. uh, but yes, uh, retrospective Le Chamazal Zen tasting is still available on the website. Cool. Um, Jason, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, MJ, we'll catch up soon. And the rest of you guys, um, thanks. All right. Really happy birthday, Bart. Bye. Thanks, right, thanks guys. Good luck with the bottling. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, once again, happy birthday, man. That's yeah, a good, that's a good it. thing. All yeah. good. Just, and just another day older. And I, I want to mention we got MJ Tower on. We got AK, yeah. the black wine guy, who's e. back, who e. is doing, who's doing a, a hospice drone virtual event this Friday. You want to? Our, yeah. Our, yeah. So nice to be back on the winemakers pod. Yep. Um, hey, Jason. Nice to meet you. Uh, How are you? I, I actually was at Tablas Creek like in 2000 or 2001 for a lunch. Uh, really good time. Really good time, beautiful property. Awesome. So yes, the black wine guy is taking over Hospice Darone's Instagram account. Um, I'm gonna go live on IG and Facebook if we can figure that tech out. I'll be speaking with uh, Sonia Magadeski from Casa Dumets, the Feminist Party, and Clementine Carter. And my boy MCA of Ledge Vineyards. Um, we're gonna just uh, drink some wines, um, talk about the Rhone, my favorite uh, region, and why Grenache is what Pinot Noir wants to be when it grows up. <laughs> oh, yay. So, um, yeah, so looking forward to everybody tune in. And uh, always fun. You guys are just getting even just, I was only for brief, briefly, but the stories are so great. I had to look up Spanish Mastiff. It's, it's like, oh, I learned something new. Like, oh, hey, MJ, what's your favorite spot to go visit over there? Oh. You got one? I don't have one and I haven't been over there in like a decade now. I will tell you, like, I just like you guys follow me. I, I could be run for mayor of 10 city. So I got a lot of people like, Hey, come visit, come visit. So I, I don't know where it's going to be. Um, uh, but, uh, what is that? What's that? Oh, the kitty. Oh, oh this monster. Yes. That's, uh, Howard. Howard. <laughs> Howard. Yeah. The orange wine cat. Yeah, Howie the, and he has his own Instagram, Howie the Wine Cat. Follow him. Um, at Howie the Wine Cat. He, 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 he's perfect. He poses right between the bottles. He grabbed the glass. Um, so that, this is my boy, Howie. But uh, yeah, no, I, there's so many people and there's so many smaller producers like I've connected with that, I, you know, that are working out of bigger operations. Um, uh, you know, uh, 
but like I said, the one the one fond memory was lunch at Tablas. Actually, um, Robert was there. Still, he was still alive, and, and it was it was a great time. Um, so I definitely want to get back there. And I, you know what he poured? He poured a kunwas. Right, kunwas. It was sick. Yeah. Like he just poured it. We didn't know what it was. Like what the hell is this? I <laughs> love doing that for people. I guess I guess I come by it honestly. Yeah, <laughs> and that's and that's one of the reasons we started following MJ is because his love of Rhone varietals. When we were looking at a lot of the wines that he was drinking, it was a lot of stuff that we drink and a lot of stuff from Paso. So even though you hadn't been there in a long time, you definitely have been drinking the wines from that region. Yeah, yeah, um, and it's I, I it's I look at Manchester and I'm like, damn, I I need to work for the Paso Robles Board of uh, Right. <laughs> <laughs> So the Kunwas is sold out right now, correct? It is. It has to be. It's not. Are, oh, are you asking? Are you asking uh, Jason? Yeah, Jason? Yes. Yeah. Are you? He's <laughs> he's confused. <laughs> he's why why why? Roger wants some Kunwas. I think is what is what's happening. It's sold out, isn't it? From last year's vintage, is sold out. No, the I don't know. I'd have to look. We 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 have a little bit of the new vintage of the Kunwas here at Tablas. I don't know what there is in Regal's inventory, but I can look it up. No, I will call. <laughs> if you call them and they say they don't have any, uh, let me know and we'll get them some more. Get some out of the salad. Jason, what are you guys doing on Friday? What are you guys doing to celebrate? So we're doing a couple different things, actually. I'm going to be um, co-hosting a a Grenache around the country panel for the Rhone Rangers. Um, so that'll be happening at four o'clock Pacific. So anybody who's interested in that, um, go to RhoneRangers.org. There's details there. It's a, it's a Zoom thing. It's free to free to come and be a part of. And then at five o'clock, Neil, who's been doing um, Facebook Live tastings with guests, has. Um, Three people, including Bob Linquist um, and uh, and Angela from Tribute to Grace, nice. coming on to talk about Grenache. Um, so it'll be on Facebook Live and on our YouTube channel starting at five o'clock Pacific. Awesome. And Sam, I know you guys, you know, not going to be a big party this year with the tent and the band or anything like that. But what are you guys doing on Friday? Uh, we're we're picking Grenache. Oh, are you picking Rossi Ranch on Friday? Uh, well, we're going to pick uh, Muchas Piedras tomorrow. So that's the, you know, uh, next to the estate that's mostly Grenache, a little Mavedra, a little Alicante. Uh, and then I think Rossi, Grenache, uh, and Grenache Blanc will come Friday and Saturday. Uh, might be going, going rosé. You know, it's, it's everybody's kind of – our plan is to sort of diversify what we do with our red wines this year in case – you know, and sort of mitigate whatever sort of smoke damage we might run into. So we're going to kind of make a little rosé out of a bunch of different things just so that we have it um, and, and get to play with something 2020 in case worst case scenarios come true. Um, so we'll be, we'll be doing that this weekend. And I haven't really thought, to be honest, Grenache Day kind of caught up on, on me. I'm looking at the calendar. We have a couple people coming in on Friday. Maybe I'll pull out some special Grenaches. If you're listening you know, over the weekend, we want to make a, a reservation. I'll show up and Corbin some uh, some old bottles of stuff. I just Corbin. Actually, you were talking about 2012, Jason, and not getting color in Grenache. Our 2012, I'm Corbinning right now and remembering. You know, it's 15% Syrah, and even then, um, you know, our, this is one of our first. No, it's not the bottle. 
uh, one of our first Roan blends we ever made. And it doesn't have a ton of color. Um, so maybe that was a, a 12 thing with Grenache. But, um, you know, we have some old vintages going back and I love to open them up. You know, I love, you know, the thing that we get to do with Grenache. And we kind of talked about this a little bit in the beginning, which is, um, you know, it's so can be so site specific. So one of the things I, I love to do is, you know, open three different 2016s from three different vineyards and, you know, really kind of dig into to what that means with Grenache and how well it sort of, um, you know, shows a, a sense of place. So, um, you know, because we're not, we're not in a state winery in the way that like Tablas Creek is, um, we get to sort of play with these different expressions of, um, you know, of this grape that we all love. So you probably do something fun with that. I might just drink a bunch. Of, I, oh, I went to, I went to see Todd. He wasn't there, but I bought um, a bottle of Gigondas. Um, I'll probably open that and drink that <laughs> to celebrate. So, nice. when are the the uh, the Instagram and Facebook Live things with Hospice Duron happening? Oh yeah, uh, actually, that's going to be at um, two p.m. Um, Pacific. Um, for the, they knew you guys were doing that event, the big Rome Ranger event, so we will make sure. So that'll be from two to three Pacific and five to six Eastern. Will you, MJ, will you like DM us the um, the details on that on, on both of those things actually, Jason, so that we can get this out in our social medias before you know? Because some people won't listen on Friday right when this comes out. Most of our loyal listeners will. Um, looking at you guys, uh, but um, and the other so the other question on that is if you're listening to this podcast after those events have happened in live formats, do you know if any of them will be available, you know, in, on YouTube or IGTV or whatever to, to be able to watch later on over the weekend? I, I think IGTV only lasts for like 24 hours. Okay. I'm meeting with Aaron, uh, Carol, Vicky's daughter. Uh, and uh, we'll see about if we can, um, we're doing, we're trying to do a multi-stream so if we can stream it to YouTube to their mm -hmm. channel, then it'll be there. And I'll, I'll, DM you guys so you guys know so you can pass it on to your listeners. Yeah, and I know that our the the Facebook and, and YouTube live thing that we're doing that always does get archived both on both in our Facebook feed and on our YouTube cool. channel. So that'll be there for sure. Cool. Go find those things if you're listening on Saturday or Sunday. And Sam, you know, I think we got to give a little shout out to uh, Philippe and to Isabel um, since we're talking about Grenache. Um, you know, I, I don't know what. I don't know what Philippe's doing right now. You know, when you follow him on want, it, man. you follow him on Instagram, it just looks like he's eating truffles. Um, <laughs> I, have, I have no <laughs> idea where he is. <laughs> an important part of making wine, isn't it? It's certainly an important part of making <laughs> nosh. <laughs> yeah. And 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 Isabel, I assume, is just out there plugging along in the vineyards. You know, Isabel, we're we're just trying to keep Isabel tethered to earth as she goes from you know vineyard to vineyard, being. The, the multiple sort of hats she wears right now for Enterprise Vineyards, both being, you know, the head of the viticulture team and, and running all of the, um, you know, the client relations and grower and, and, and winery relations, but also um, being the winemaker for a, you know increasing portion of 16600 and, and Audio Tech. So, you know, she definitely um, does goes well beyond earning her keep this time of year and, and uh, is running around and we just, keep her, you know, satiated with coffee and, um, you know, other stuff that we grow and, and make sure that her head's on straight and moving in the right direction. <laughs> um, and I actually, so on that note, I, I went to, when I was at Sonoma's Best, I bought a bottle of Esprit Gossier 
Just kind yeah. of like, oh, the Gossiers. Apparently, that's not Isabel's family. That's the other Gossier family. <laughs> Wait a minute. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's Gossier en Provence as opposed to, you know, Cote de Nîmes. So um, I-, I told her that she should tell these people to change their names. Like, <laughs> you know, not how it works over there. <laughs> For sure. All it's right, guys. And you would love this. I, well, are you kidding? I posted it and, and tagged Isabel. <laughs> <laughs> and she was so nice, she didn't say a thing. She didn't say a thing. Well, now, nope. you, now we know. All right. All right, you guys. It's good to catch up with everyone. I, you know, I hope that um, in April we can all get to see each other in person. We still have that reservation standing at the hatch, don't we? I've never eaten there. Uh, we're going to be eating at the hatch. We're going to be staying at the Airbnb that I originally had reserved that was on that farm that had sheep, <laughs> not at Tablas Creek, but somewhere else that has uh, some sheep. And, and um, some big mean dogs to t- keep us in line. Hopefully we're <laughs> cooking, except we sold the fig rig. So what are you going to cook we'll at? Right. Do... In the kitchen. Yep. yep. In the kitchen at the, uh, at the, at the fairgrounds. So. Yeah. And All we'll right. go do that uh, tasting at Tablas. What I was going to say, John, is of all the places really in California, other than, you know, obviously my winery, the, probably the place I'd feel <laughs> the safest right now is tasting at Tablas. To be honest, Jason, you know, the stuff that you were talking about early on and, and through the course of like the beginning of Shelter in Place and how we reopened safely was basically the blueprint for what we did here at 16600. So I, I don't know how much you realize sort of the blogs that you put out there, are, you know, at least for this industry person are, are um, you know, the, the guide that I like to follow. I feel like if, if Jason and Tablas Creek are doing it, then I can do it too. So appreciate awesome. it. Oh, what a nice thing to, what a nice thing to hear. Thanks for letting me know. I see the numbers of how many people read it, but um, it's, it's awfully nice to know that, that uh, every now and then the things that I write, people actually find helpful. <laughs> no, you guys are, you know, truly a, a, a leaders in this industry in a lot of ways, not just only on the Grenache and, and the Rhone varieties. So uh, happy to follow that lead. Thank you, yeah. Sam. Yeah, congratulations again on the regenerative uh, farming certification. That's that's huge, and that's something that Sam and I and Jasmine and Phil have been talking about in the in the tasting room for you know the last year or two. Is is that sustainable is not enough? Um, that we really need to get to regenerative. And it, it it used to twist my tongue a little bit saying regenerative, but now that we've been talking about it so much, it kind of rolls out. <laughs> glass of Grenache gets way easier to say, Brad. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. All right, you guys, any uh, last shout outs anyone want to get? This is the time. Thanks, Brad. What other guests you got coming up, man? Oh, so um, I have a really, uh, really cool uh, importer, a woman named Mary Taylor. We, we did that one last week. That's going to be a fire episode. She's been big. Uh, we saw Dustin Wilson. That's before Congress over the tariffs. She's, she's really big in that fight because um, her book is European. Um, I have uh, Shakira Jones, who just uh, Black Girls Dying, and who just has her own Psalm series we're going in next week. And I just confirmed James Molesworth will be in on October 8th. That's going to be hot. That one's going to be hot. So You're going to talk wine or Negronis and jazz? We're going to talk <laughs> Negronis, jazz, vinyl. And why he might be the smoothest white boy ever. <laughs> and his new apartment. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, that dude, that dude is, yeah, it's going to be a fun conversation. So, yeah, so that, that's those are people coming up, and then I'm working on, obviously, more. But, um, yeah. Looking forward to it, man. Thanks. Hi, Howie. Howie. Meow. 
The orange wine cat. Yeah, Howie the wine cat, everybody on Instagram. How? Okay. Pretty That's soon he's going to have t-shirts too. All right, you guys. Hey, it was good to, to do a show where we, we didn't, um, you know, talk too much about smoke and, and COVID, but to actually talk about well, wine and, 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 and celebrate a little bit um, one of our favorite grapes and, and do what we, you know, get back to kind of what we like doing is, is talking about wine. So I do appreciate it. Jason, I look forward to seeing you. I appreciate your time. We'll, uh, you know, hopefully see you in April and I'll bring John along and uh, John, you can ride one of those sheep. There you go. That's exactly <laughs> what I need to do. Exactly. <laughs> All right, guys, follow uh, at Tobless Creek at Black Wine Guy, uh, Winery 16600. The girl in the fig still open for uh, Howie the dinner. cat. Howie and, the cat. Howie, Howie the, the cat. Howie the wine right. cat. Awesome. <laughs> All right. If you want to check out some of our past shows, you can go to radiomisfits.com backslash the winemakers. We will look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you all for listening. Subscribe.